and welcome to the Autumn Ridge Women's Podcast, where we explore God's Word, not simply to learn more about the Bible, but to consider how to apply its wisdom. I'm your host, Svea Mary, and each week I'm joined by talented women from our congregation. We invite you to imagine yourself sitting here with us, enjoying a great discussion as friends about God and how His Word helps us take our next steps to become the women God intends for us to be. How exciting it is to be beginning a new Bible study series on the book of Ephesians. And who better to start it with than our amazing Bible teacher and frequent study launcher, Jan Wright. Welcome, Jan. Oh, thanks, Faya. I'm really looking forward to going through this book. Yeah, I am too. We've done on this podcast several different formats of Bible study. We've done you know an entire series on one chapter. Right. We've done some that have been more topically. But I'd have to say going through a book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is, has got to be my favorite. So I'm really excited that we get to go through all of the book of Ephesians now over the next eight weeks. Uh, Jan, one of the things you are known for is your ability to help us put books of the Bible into context. So I can't think of a better place to start than to start there. What would you like to share with us about Paul and this letter called Ephesians? Oh, there's lots of things we could talk about with the book. But I think to start out with, Paul wrote this letter while he was under house arrest in Rome in 86. Towards the end of his life. And he also wrote the letter to the Colossians, which has a lot of similarities, and Philemon mm. at around the same time. Mm-hmm. Paul spent three years living in Ephesus. He was deeply involved with this church, which leads to some interesting conclusions about the letter. When you go through the letter, you'll notice that there isn't much personal information in it. I mean, Paul doesn't refer to people in the church by name, he doesn't address any of their specific issues or really make much of a personal connection with this church that he knew so well. Mm -hmm. So it's believed that Paul intended for this letter to be first delivered to his beloved church in Ephesus, but then to be shared with all the churches in the surrounding region. And that's why the message is pretty universal for what all believers in Christ should know and understand. Well, and I I really appreciate that about this letter, because I think it because of the more general nature of it, it makes it easier for us to apply it to our lives, since it's not quite as specific to a certain group of believers in a certain context. Um, it's, it's a really helpful general book for us to understand some big themes. And very timeless. Absolutely. Um, two big chunks of this book are really easy to identify. There's six chapters in the book, and the first three are really beautiful theology about God and his plan for us as believers and in the church. And then it builds on that in chapters four through six on that foundation of theology to show us how we are to live in light of those theological truths. And, uh, and I love the themes that come through. We see the themes coming through both in the theology in the beginning and then more the practical side of it in the second half of the book. Themes about the work of God to reconcile all creation to himself through Christ, and then also this resulting identity that we are to have as those who live out our unity in Christ in both the church and in our daily lives. So much great theology there. Well, to go back to the context a little, it's helpful to know that Ephesus was a key city in what is now modern-day Turkey, and people flocked through Ephesus because of its strategic location on the crossroads of the Roman Empire. And though this letter was circulated around the region, Ephesus was the religious and economic kind of engine city of the region. Mm -hmm. It was also known as the Bank of Asia, which 
makes it interesting to view Paul's references to riches and wealth in that context, because Mm -hmm. that would have been very relatable to his readers. Mm -hmm. Their culture was heavily influenced by the worship of the god Artemis, and her temple was one of the original seven wonders of the Mm -hmm. world. That explains some of the spiritual warfare aspect in the back when it was such an element in that culture. Yeah, totally. And being this metropolitan hub in the crossroads of the world meant, like it does in many of our own metropolitan cities, that Ephesus and the surrounding region was home to people of diverse cultures. Mm, Yeah, indeed. And even within this church, there were people from a Roman background, a Greek background, and a Jewish background. They were all established there. And so this fledgling Christian church was really breaking new ground and creating unity amidst quite a diverse population. Uh, The church was, uh, as we would expect, experiencing all the good, all the bad, and all the ugly in learning how people from varying backgrounds could live united in Christ. And we're going to see quite a bit about that in this book as we go through about uh, Jew and Gentile learning to live together um, as church, as believers, all united in Christ. Uh, A couple other just little fun facts. Um, You mentioned the Temple of Artemis being one of the original seven wonders of the world. Ephesus was known for this great amphitheater that seated 25,000 people. Um, I was just at a mega church last week that seated 10,000, and I thought that was mind-boggling. I can't even imagine 25,000 people. And to note that there weren't like high-quality electronic systems and microphones and all that sort of thing. No, they had acoustics figured out. Um, A couple of of words to look for as we go through Ephesians. Uh, The word grace is used 12 times in this short letter. Look for grace. And then a phrase, one of my favorite phrases in this book, that's 27 times you'll see the phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus. And that that idea of all of these things happening in Christ, I think is so beautiful. To me, it's like, All that we're doing is in Christ in the same way that a fish is in water or the bird is in the air. If we think of our lives as Christians, as people who are in Christ, it just infuses everything we do. So watch for that as we go too. Yeah, so I'm I'm ready to jump in, but before we get started on chapter one, I just wanted to mention something um, that we recently did as leaders for this study. We sat together and we read the whole letter out loud, out loud in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Each of us took a paragraph, and we just read until the next person took over, regardless of translation or regardless of whether we were reading from our phones or hard copy. And that was an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, often and for good reason, we study in detail verses and segments of Paul's letter, and that has great value. However, there was something about reading the whole letter at once without stopping that gave us a real sense of the flow and the themes. Yeah, it was fun. It felt like worship was building as we got farther and farther along. But but certainly we were able to see how the whole book fits together and the progression of Paul's train of thought. And, and it was really helpful in Ephesians because there's a lot of very common verses or concepts that we see. Um, you know, the classic verses like, for by grace you've been saved through faith, or the doctrine. Yeah 
doxology. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we think or ask. Or uh, if you're a married person or want to be a married person, yeah. you've probably read Ephesians 5 before or the classic armor of God section in, in Ephesians 6. But so often we read these verses or these passages as isolated sound bites, and we use them topically, but reading through the entire letter, you see Paul's underlying point of how these passages and these these concepts all really fit together. Yeah, and as we did that, one thing we could see clearly was that the letter begins with the deep theology of what God the Father, Christ the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has done for us. Mm. And that context is foundational for then how we are to live as followers of Christ. I mean, we can't just jump to how we live our lives without understanding the theological truths of our faith. And we also can't expect others who don't know Christ to behave according to some of the ways Paul's instructs without this underlying foundational aspects of our faith. Yeah. I'd say we also could see Paul's humor coming through in ways oh, we yes. hadn't noticed before. We laughed out loud at a couple of points. Yes, um, he has an art with sarcasm. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. You'll have to read through the whole book to find it. Mm. But we do encourage you to do that before you begin this study. Um, maybe if you're just listening to the podcast on your own or if you're with someone else, we did love you to take 15 minutes is all it should take to just read through the whole book. And uh, I think you'll find that that's uh, time really well spent. All right, so let's dive in. Mm -hmm. Today we're going to cover verses 1 through 14, which is a short but richly packed chunk, and I'm going to start us off by reading those first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, let's just take these first two verses here first as this introduction. It's it's a quite common introduction, quite similar to the way that Paul starts many of his other letters. But there's really cool stuff that we can pull out just from these first two verses. Paul immediately ascribes his role as an apostle of Christ Jesus as one specifically given to him by the will of God. How cool is that to feel like you're mm-hmm. confident that you know that what you're doing is because it is God's will uh, for your life. And he also addresses the saints. Now, saints for some of us might bring up kind of a Catholic context, but when Paul uses the word saints, he is literally meaning the holy ones is what that that word would have translated to. But it means anyone who's faithful in Christ, whether they put their, or meaning that they've put their faith in Christ, believers, in other words, which is a nice thing because any of us who believe in Jesus Christ know that this should be something that can apply to us too. And then I just love his common phrase, grace and peace, uh, but that it comes from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we read is a pretty standard greeting from Paul, but yet beautiful things can be derived from the idea that God has a will and purpose for us Mm. and that he is the source of grace and peace that we need to live as a united community of faith-filled followers of Jesus. Yeah, I love it. Um, Before we go into the rest of the section in verses 3 through 14, which um, unbelievably, as Paul wrote it, was one long (laughs) sentence. This man was uh, not uh, an overuser of punctuation. Uh, But uh, but as we go into this, I think it would be worth just 
maybe we talk about the approach that we're going to take with this, because as you and I have studied this passage mm-hmm. and uh, read certain commentaries and talked through how we wanted to approach this, there's a really beautiful framework in these verses in 3 through 14 that demonstrate the work of the Trinity. And, uh, you know, I, I think that will be a helpful framework for us to use. Yeah, I really like the structure that Warren Wearsby provides in his commentary, which breaks this first section down into the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that's the Trinity, right? The Trinity is a picture of these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, united as one God. Um, a working definition of Trinity is that it is one true God eternally existing as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're each equal in nature, equal as God, but distinct in their roles. Uh, the Father is not the Son, who's not the Spirit, but they are all equally God. They're all equal in every attribute of God. They're all equally loving. They're all equally all-knowing, all equally just, all equally sovereign, and so on. Well, let's pause for just a minute there, because I wonder if we sometimes unintentionally introduce an element of competition hmm. in the Trinity that's not accurate in that we can think of the God of the Old Testament as being angry, sort of like a bad cop, Mm -hmm. and Jesus being loving and appeasing to an angry God, and, well, the Holy Spirit's just a bit neglected and misunderstood in the general picture. Uh, uh But again, it's helpful to really reflect that they're equal in every attribute, in love, omniscience, justice, and sovereignty. Yeah, and yet they are distinct persons who do exhibit different roles. And uh, and Ephesians 1 is a really great place for us to explore this idea that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the process of bringing us into a secure relationship with God, but they're going to be doing it in slightly different ways. As we work through this section, there's a there's a little key phrase to watch for, though, that helps us divide it into the three sections, and that's the phrase, to the praise of his glory. This phrase, or, or a slight variation of it after the Father section, ends each statement about the work of each, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And, and the beautiful way that Paul uses this phrase is after he tells us what each person of the Trinity does for us, then he uses this phrase, to the praise of his glory, kind of meant to evoke our response of worship to each person of God because of the spiritual blessings that he's given to us. So our response to each work of these separate persons of the Trinity, when we look at them, is to praise his glory glory. Mm-hmm. And to praise his glory seems to be addressed to every person, every portion of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Wow. That we are to praise each person's glory is kind of a mild proof of the divinity of the Son and Spirit as God, since it would be blasphemous to worship any person that's not God. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So let's let's look at it. Verses three through six are going to outline for us the work of the Father in bringing us into a restored relationship with Him. Um, I'm going to just read three through six for us, and then maybe we can pull out some of the the good concepts here. Starting with verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So there are two things right off the bat there that we see. He's chosen us and he's adopted us. Mm. Mm-hmm. And how incredible that even before individual people were created, God wanted to bring us as his creation into his family, that he would choose in love to adopt us as his children. And knowing that we would fail to live up to his perfection, he had a plan to make us holy and blameless mm. through Jesus, the beloved. It's amazing. And knowing that the church in Ephesus was made up of Jews and Gentiles, I mean, imagine how they would have received this message. I mean, don't you wonder, were they bothered by the idea that a church of Jews and Gentiles was God's plan all along? Were they jealous of the Gentiles' shared adoption and inheritance? Well, that'll be a good thing for us to focus on and tease out as we work through this book. But uh, but. But underlying that is this concept that God has already accepted us, that even before, not just before you and I were born, but before any of creation happened, he already had chosen to adopt us as his own sons. And the plan that he had to accept us is such a comfort because that means there's nothing that we can do that's going to thwart the will of God. This plan has been in place even before the foundation of the world were chosen we're wanted, and we're safe in his ultimate plan. And I I think to reflect on that should really have some beautiful implications for our personal identity. I mean, Ephesians is a great place in the Bible for us to glean healthy thoughts about who we are in Christ. Mm -hmm. And if we really let this concept that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be part of his family, um, it's really quite mind-blowing. Yeah, and I think it's also worth reflecting on the concept that we had talked about, that God created Eden knowing it would be very temporary. His plan all along was that humanity would be perfected through Christ Mm. and destined for eternity in the new heaven and earth. Um, Jesus was never the plan B or a patch to fix the mess that we made. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point that we see coming out in Ephesians 1 more clearly than many other parts of Scripture. Well, let's talk about Jesus, the plan A, mm-hmm. <laughs> all along. Uh, verses 7 through 12 demonstrate the work of the Son. Uh, let me read those for us. In Him, the Son, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I just love that the Son, God incarnate as Jesus Christ, redeems and forgives us through what he did on the cross. And I love where it says he lavishes his rich grace on us. And I think it's fascinating that we can sometimes think of grace as like this wonderful thing that God did for us to make up for the way that we fail, right. you know, but it's it's not that he just 
is kind of apologizing for our mistakes or our failures and gives us grace to to account for it or or like those times as a parent I don't probably you've never done this Jan but there's been times where I've just overlooked things that my kids did because I was just too lazy to Mm -hmm. do anything about it so you know giving them grace but it wasn't necessarily because of being a wise parent it it wasn't with the the best of uh, reasons there but but notice in verse 8 the grace that was given to us is in all wisdom. This plan isn't foolish. It wasn't impos- impulsive. It wasn't God's laziness just to give us grace. It right. was his wise plan from the very beginning. And then through Jesus, he's revealed God's will to us. In the Bible, the word mystery doesn't mean something which cannot be known or understood, but rather something that's not been fully disclosed. And Paul tells us in verse 9 that the mystery, the hidden plan now made known is that God is bringing all things in heaven and on earth under one head, who is Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's helpful to to realize because when we think of mystery, we tend to think of something that isn't solved yet or something we don't know. And that's not what Paul means. And that'll be important as we go through this whole book. When he's saying mystery, he's meaning maybe more like the way we would think of something that would cause us to marvel. Right. You know, this idea that there's now information that we have that had been hidden before. It used to be something that they didn't know, but now they know. And the the mystery is this. And, And we see it even more clearly in Colossians, which, as you mentioned, Jan Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians at the same time. Um, and there's a lot of similarities, but it make, he makes it clear in Colossians 1, 25 through 27, that this mystery is the process that of bringing the Gentiles into mm-hmm. the people of God, and because it's with Christ in them, and that they're now also the inheritors of the full riches of God's glory, because they have Christ in them. So the other thing the son does is he has made us an inheritance. And Mm -hmm. I'm always affected in a very personal way every time I think of the inheritance that Christ has secured for each of us. Mm. As a young adult, I was introduced to wills. My mother died when I was 28 and my father when I was 37. Mm. And I can remember in the last few months of my dad's life, him handing me his will, telling me to read it, and to ask any questions I had right then. And to see those promises written in legal language in advance, and then to see them go into full legal force when he died was very powerful. Mm. And to understand that the promises of God to us went into full legal force upon the death of Christ, and that those are secure and unchangeable is Mm. very profound. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the guarantee that that will will be enacted is what the last two verses of this section talk about in the work of the Spirit. Uh, Jan, do you want to read verses 13 and 14 for us? Sure. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Mm-hmm. It's such an amazing thing. And, and again, notice there that we've had that phrase again, to the praise of his glory, that mm-hmm. we can praise the work of the Spirit in this in these uh, verses here. And we should praise him for the way that the Spirit seals our guarantee that every all of these blessings that they've already described uh, is going to happen, that it it's there's something that changes when we believe the gospel that 
the promises are now a future guarantee for us. And what a blessing that is that we can have total confidence in our security in this plan. We don't have to be afraid. Are, are we being good enough or do we have enough yeah. faith? If we believe, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he's given us an earnest. I mean, when you make large purchases like a house, you have to put down earnest money or a deposit indicating that you are serious and will follow through with the transaction. And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit so that we may understand that the promises are secure. It's an initial gift of our inheritance. And again, my father taught me a great spiritual lesson here as well in that after reading that will, he gave me a token gift Mm. as a demonstration of his faithfulness. Mm. And our inheritance is guaranteed all the way until we are living in it. And again, nothing can thwart this plan. As we were preparing for this, I was trying to figure out an analogy or some way of, of, of visualizing what this means, because this is pretty deep and rich yes. theology. And, uh, and forgive me if this analogy is, is oversimplistic. Um, and of course, no analogy can perfectly uh, describe the work of the Trinity. But something that kind of came to mind as I was trying to put this into, into a picture, um, you could imagine the work of the Trinity involved in our adoption and our redemption and then our guaranteed inheritance maybe is kind of like if there was an incredibly wealthy and incredibly kind person who was building the ultimate luxury resort. Mm-hmm. I mean, picture the palm trees and the you know whatever is your Ocean idea of paradise waves, yes the yes. warm breeze the whole the whole nine yards and he's building this incredible resort but even before the first building was broken ground he had a dream of inviting us to come and not just visit but to come and stay there and enjoy it with him and his family as full members mm. with all of the privileges that that entails However, he knew that, that we'd never be able to afford the cost of what it would cost to be there on our own. But out of his incredible love for us and his desire that we could get to experience this paradise with him to the same extent as his own family, he met with his family and his son, who's just as kind and generous and capable as the father, in full agreement with the plan, offered to pay the cost for oh, us. wow. And this paradise and happiness is just completely free for us. All we have to do is accept this incredible gift and then perfect fellowship in this amazing family is ours. And lest it seem too good to be true, I mean, that would be a hard gift to accept and believe it would possibly happen. And if we were to begin to doubt that this family truly wants this for us, then this offer, they make good on it when it is time. And as soon as we say yes, we're given this admission wristband, <laughs> you know, like the kind that won't fall off when you're in the shower or something, but something that we could wear on our wrist the whole time until we actually get there. And this guarantee wristband proves that our bill has already been paid in full up front. Our room will be ready and waiting for us and we'll be welcomed in with the full privileges and joy that awaits us as family of the incredible kind benefit factor. I love that analogy. <laughs> I can really see that. I can feel it. It. I understand it as an adult who has to pay bills, but I think <laughs> it's simple enough that even a child can understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I love to try to find a word picture that mm-hmm. helps to to envision some of this. And, and that idea that we're not there yet, but we're guaranteed admission when it's when it's the right time because of the grace 
of the work of the, the son, the dream, the vision, the purpose, the plan of the father and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, well, we have gotten through this first section. <laughs> I, I can't wait for the rest of the book. And uh, I think why don't we close this time out in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God. And how incredible is it that you had a plan from before the foundation of the world to bring us into full fellowship with you. Um, we thank you for that. We, we know we don't deserve it, uh, we, but we, we are just in awe of your love for us and your desire to bring us into your family. Uh, we thank the work of Jesus who died on the cross in order to make that happen, who paid the cost for us to make it possible for us to be part of your family. We thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. And to the Spirit, thank you for the guarantee that you place on our lives, the sealing that you do, so that we don't have to fear that uh, that maybe God has second thoughts or, or that the offer is too good to be true, but that you have promised that you will be faithful to... Um, to, to bring us into the full joy of this plan at the time when it is time. Uh, God, we are just in awe of your plan and your love for us in this. And we pray now as we launch this study in Ephesians that you would help us to see your plan with greater clarity than maybe we've ever seen it before and, uh, and that we would be people that would just bask in the glory of each person of the Trinity to the praise of your glory, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Autumn Ridge Women's Podcast, a production of Autumn Ridge Church. We appreciate the technical assistance provided by Josiah Novinger, Ian Benoit, Robert Nash, and others from our wonderful staff. We'd love to hear your comments or questions on this or any other episode, and you could reach us at women at autumnridgechurch.org.